0: Out of every 100 men, 10 shouldn't even be there. 80 are just targets. Nine are the real fighters. We are lucky to have them, for they make the battle. Ah, but the one, one is a warrior, and he will bring the others back. This was written by, what we'll we'll say, it's, it's attributed to Heraclitus, 500 B.C. He was an ancient Greek philosopher. What are you thinking when you read that? Are you thinking, wow, how would I stack up in that? you wondering if you'd make the cut? Do you aspire to be that one? Do you aspire to bring, be that one that's going to bring the others back? Right? This is an aspirational quote. <clears throat> so recently I had the chance to run an adventure race. A lot of mud and obstacles. Some of you in this room also was there with me. Um, mostly as a bunch of middle, middle-aged, uh, good-natured, pudgy wannabes like me in gym shorts and headbands. Um, I frankly I didn't take the race too seriously my wife signed me up for it and uh, <laughs> I went along and I really had a good time It was it was a great time but I reflected on the name of that race Spartan so it's a Spartan race and how that meaning has been passed down to us through the ages as warriors that are worthy of our admiration and respect so the promoters of this race series and they do events all over the world they overtly tie the named Spartan and all the imagery associated with the promotion of the race and the names of the different races and the events, it's tied in to Spartans. We think of Spartans as tough, motivated, hardcore soldiers ready to fight to the death to defend hearth and home. Largely because of the writings of Plutarch, Xenophon, and Herodotus, we we have learned a lot. We have read a lot about Spartans. They're they're uh, ubiquitous in our popular culture as well. It's even now synonymous with hard discipline, deprivation of creature comforts, and a life of austerity. We admire the highly mythologized three hundred warriors who stood in the gap in four hundred eighty B. at Thermopylae, also known as the Hot Gates. Go ahead and advance that one more. <clears throat> and they. Th- they threw back the onslaught of tens of thousands of persians and we draw comparisons to what do we draw comparisons to in the united states here with the spartans at thermopylae and maybe some other battle that happened here in the united states Long, so who said the alamo all right jim the alamo all right so um, the we we make these comparisons with the they're known as the texicans the tejanos the Texians, we just call them Texans today. But back in those days, they had some slightly different names. But we make this comparison. Um, we quote King Leonidas Bravado of the Spartans. Let's go ahead and advance one more. What did he say? So apparently an emissary from Xerxes came. At least this is what's been passed down to us through these, these writings. And he said, we have so many archers that when they let loose their arrows, it blocks out the sun. What did King Leonidas say? He said, good. And we shall fight in the shade. And then another time when they were getting down there to the end of the battle and there was only a few of them left, King Xerxes uh, told them to lay down their weapons. And apparently what we're told is King Leonidas said, come and take them, right? We've all heard that in North Idaho, right? Um, come and take them. <clears throat> we resonate, going back to the Alamo here, we resonate, okay, my clicker's working now, I think, unless one of you guys did that. We resonate with uh, Colonel Travis, who answered Santa Ana's demand for surrender of the Alamo with a cannon shot and an I shall never surrender or retreat and a victory or death message. So the cowboy attitude of the Texans to this day reflects this plucky defiance. Do we have any Texans in the audience? Congregation, okay. <clears throat> they would probably already be saying amen really loudly if we did. <laughs> so we've all heard of Colonel uh, Travis, of him drawing that line in the sand with his sword uh, and telling the 200 or so misfits, vagabonds, and adventurers who remain to join him by stepping over the line if they volunteered to defend the fort. Even now, draw a line, line in the sand, and crossing the line still survive in our modern language as expressions of courageously standing by one's principles in spite of the cost. But back to the Spartans. When we think of Spartans, we envision these these bold and these fearless warriors. We do not think of the enforced and accepted Spartan cultural practice of inspecting babies, inspecting babies at birth, and discarding all but the, quote, healthiest and sturdiest looking among them. They would leave them in the at the foot of a mountain. They called it exposure, very akin to our modern sin of abortion. We admire the moxie of the Spartan women who told their husbands when they sallied forth to battle, come back with your shield or upon it. But we do not think of the Spartan practice of removing boys from their parents at the age of seven and putting them in this horrific uh, school of abuse and hazing and fights to the death called the Agoge that developed them to become these superhuman warriors. In a somewhat similar, highly mythologized last stand battles, the Spartans at Thermopylae, the Texans at the Alamo, they fought bravely to the death, and we still talk about them today. At Thermopylae, the Spartans held out for three days, and although ultimately suffered a tactical defeat, they inflicted serious damage on the Persian army which delayed the Persians' progress to Athens. That was a strategic victory. This three days delay provided sufficient time for the city's evacuation to the island of Salamis. And the Spartans' last stand at Thermopylae also served as a moral victory, inspiring the Greeks to defeat the Persians at the Battle of Salamis, and one year later, again, at the Battle of Plataea. So it was not all lost, right? At the Alamo, for 13 days, the siege continued until Santa Ana's army breached the defenses and killed all the combatants. Some of the non-combatants were allowed to live, and they spread the word of the defeat through Texas. And a month and a half later, with shouts of, Remember the Alamo, General Sam Houston defeated Santa Ana at the Battle of San Jacinto. So while I've identified some characteristics that we can admire about the the warriors, the Spartan warriors, and about the the brave men who defended the Alamo? What can we learn as Christians uh, from, from this warrior ethos? <clears throat> so, first of all, what does it mean to be a warrior for Christ? Do we believe, like the jihadis, that we should kill people to save them? Or to earn some sort of paradise existence? Now, we believe differently as Christians. We believe that it is better to sacrifice our lives rather than kill someone else, right? Kill someone else for, in this context of uh, salvation. So, first of all, our primary example of how to live and interact with others is Jesus. How does Jesus stack up with other role models that we allow into our lives? You ever thought about that? How would Jesus rank up with prominent politicians? Hollywood stars of the day anyone ever seen the uh... yeah so anyone ever seen the replacement gods put out by uh, Little Light Studios Um, I watched it many years ago but it was a it was a video that talked about how these comic book heroes that are portrayed in comic books now they're made to to have divine attributes very similar to Jesus but they don't act like Jesus right Uh, Jesus was a servant leader he wasn't out there zipping around uh, for laugh lines. These TV shows, they are portrayed, these characters are portrayed with godlike qualities and superpowers that overshadow the Son of Man, who taught us the best way to lead is to serve, and he washed the feet of his followers. Jesus is so well portrayed in the series The Chosen in this manner. And my family has been incredibly blessed by seeing him on that, on that uh, TV show. But we look at uh, Luke 19.10, where Jesus says, The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost, right? <clears throat> That's our example. He is our example. The highest form of discipline to which we should apro- aspire is this. This is what Sam Acuna read as our scripture. The fruit of the righteous is tree of life, and he that winneth souls is wise. That's from the KJV. We can enjoy a weekend roll in the mud, a relishing of the fresh air and the good times with friends. In fact, we actually have signed up for another Spartan race because there's so much fun. So we're going to be doing that in September. We can enjoy clamoring over obstacles as part of a race course. We can appreciate the snappily marketed effort to encourage physical fitness And we can admire these historic figures who bravely fought to defend hearth and home. But our battle as Christians is much higher. And we need all hands on deck. But you should keep a clear mind in every situation. Don't be afraid of suffering for the Lord. Work at telling others the good news and fully carry out the ministry God has given you. What's the ministry God has given every one of us in this room? If you're a Christian... Your ministry is to share the gospel, share the good news. Now, there's slightly different methods to do that, and not all of us are called to be an upfront preacher. But man, you can share it in your work, you can share it in your sphere of influence, whatever that may be, with your friends. Ellen White says, The highest of all sciences is the science of soul saving. The greatest work to which human beings can aspire is the work of winning men from sin to holiness. For the accomplishment of this work, a broad foundation must be laid. A comprehensive education is needed. Something more is called for than the culture of the intellect. Education is not complete unless the body, the mind, the heart are equally educated. The character must receive proper discipline for its fullest and highest development. So, be that one. Be that one in your family. Be that one in your work, in your hobbies. So you might say, well, you know what, I, I, you know, I, I can't be a witness. I'm, I make mistakes. I can't talk to others. My personal life is not a perfect example of a Christian. But you know what? <laughs> Get over yourself. Paul told the Corinthians similar things. <clears throat> he said, don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in, and he listed a whole bunch of sins that if I were to say them out here, You'd have to explain them to your kids, and they're things that are in the common society today, anyways. Uh, None of these will inherit the kingdom of God. Some of you were once like that. So the KJV, he says, such were some of you. But you were cleansed, you were made holy, you were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. So there's a really great verse that Brady read this morning in Sabbath school that goes right along with this. Romans 5, <clears throat> starting with verse 6, we were utterly helpless. When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an unright, unright person, though some might perhaps be willing to die for a person who's especially good, but God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And since we have been made right with God, in God's sight, by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. So be that one pointing others to Jesus. Be that one in your family, and your work. You don't have to be perfect to be that one. But you say, well, you know what, like, the church is so corrupt. I hear some people calling it Babylon. Church is so corrupt, I don't think I can work with them. I don't want to work as part of the organized church body. Well, you know what? This is not new either. Ellen White said, Dear brethren of the General Conference, I testify to my brethren and sisters that the church of Christ, enfeebled and as defective as it may be, is the only object on earth on which he bestows his supreme regard. While he extends to the world his invitation to come to him and be saved, he commissions his angels to render divine help to every soul, that cometh to him in repentance and contrition, and he comes personally by his Holy Spirit into the midst of his church. That church that she was talking about is this church today. It's the same organization. Yes, it's imperfect. And yes, I have some serious disagreements with some things the leadership is doing. But we are still to be active and working within our local church body. This is the mission that God has given to us. How many of you have heard of Dr. Jordan B. Peterson? He's one of my favorite. Yes, yes, he is Canadian, but we'll, we'll forgive him for that. He's one of my favorite Canadians. <laughs> okay, so his he has he wrote this this great book, and he's uh, called the Twelve Rules for Life. And this is number six: Set your house in perfect order before you criticize the world. Shortened down, succinct. It's make your bed, make your bed. And basically, the meaning of this is. Before you start poking holes and criticizing what's going on on the other side of the world, there's there's all sorts of problems. We all know. We've all seen it, right? Let's fix what's closest here, right? Like, what can I do? What is the good work that God has for me to do right here in this church, right here in my family, right here at my employer? We all have spheres of influence. Our home, profession, church, friend group, Strive for excellence in your sphere and try to avoid stressing about things you can't control on the other side of the world. All right. How many of you have a panic device in your pocket right now? Yes, 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 we see that. So we can see all the terrible and horrible and unjust and unfair things that are happening on the other side of the world. And it is brought to us instantaneously in the palm of our hands. And we can lose all perspective. It is so easy to lose all perspective and get distracted by things that really we can't do anything about. We have to be careful not to panic over the headlines of the day and understand that the news is run by people who make money based on clicks or time watched. The puppet masters behind the scenes understand that outrage and fear are such powerful motivations to get us to keep coming back for whatever it is they're peddling, all that stuff. You guys know what I'm talking about. So fix and manage within your sphere of influence before whining about what's going on elsewhere. Be aware of what's happening elsewhere, but not consumed by it. Understand that things may seem overwhelming sometimes, but at no other time in the history of mankind have we had the ability to see all the terrible things that are happening around the world. No other time in human history. But we know about it now because of the information age. And I'm not complaining about technology. I love some of the incredible benefits that technology has brought into our life. But we have to be very careful about this natural human tendency to catastrophize. Anyone anyone ever heard of catastrophizing? So this is what we do, and we all do it, right, to a certain extent. We can imagine the worst possible outline of, to an action or event, and then we bring that in and we fixate on it. If we if we're not careful, we can fixate on this and it can steal your joy, and it can steal your sleep, and it can ruin relationships. Anyone ever read uh, the unthinkable? Who survives when disaster strikes and why? Yes, yes, Kevin. All right, it's an incredible book. Highly recommend it. Um, I had read it many years ago. <laughs> So now I, now I keep track of the books that I read and I actually have a Word document on my computer of, and I, I write down the, the books that are amazing that I read. So that way I can go back and reference it. But for years, I'd, I, I remembered the stuff I would learned from this book but I couldn't go back and reference it because I hadn't written it down anywhere and I'd read a whole bunch of other books before then and so I just stumbled upon it again recently and read it and it's incredible. Have you ever considered why you fear some things more than others? Why do news stories focus on the remotest of threats and the freakiest of freak accidents coming true? Anyone remember Stranger Danger from the 80s? Yeah, that's just a myth, right? Uh, the women, of course, not you women in this audience. <clears throat> women, your greatest threat to your health and safety is from the men that you marry or the men that you date. That's it. Like, stats, stats show that out. Uh, children, the greatest threats to your health and safety, again, present company excluded, are from the acquaintances in your life. An uncle, a neighbor, someone within your your sphere. Loose connections. Um, as far as interracial violence goes, man, news loves to play it up when one person from one race hurts or kills someone from another. Stats do not bear that out. That is such an exception, such a, a tiny minuscule uh, amount of violence. The most threat to you from, of any race is from your own race. Like, that's it. Um, who's, who in here is, is afraid of flying? Flying commercially, I'm not going to call you out by name. Okay, okay, you raised your hand, Faye, all right. Um, okay, so so why, why are we afraid of flying? Do you know that you're 65 more times, 65 times more likely to die by driving the same distance from, say, Boston, to chicago or to la or whatever 65 times more likely to die in a traffic fatality along that way than if you had flown it commercially okay but we all we all have these we all have these irrational fears what what, what about the, what about the pandemic we just went through right 99 percent survival rate but everyone freaked out about it why okay so let's bring in the dread equation Amanda Ripley actually broken this down, this type of irrational fear of remote threats into a mathematical equation in her outstanding book. So, dread equals uncontrollability, unfamiliarity, imaginability, suffering, scale of destruction, and unfairness. So, whatever you're fearing, if it's, we'll just say flight, commercial flight. So, the dread that you feel for commercial flight is largely because you're not in the driver's seat, you also don't know how to drive a plane, fly a plane. You also can imagine in your mind how terrible it must be to be falling from for thousands of feet, uh, suffering. Oh man, suffering on huge scales. Right? When a commercial airline does go up, go down, most people don't survive. Uh, the scale of destruction. We've all have seen those those newsreel footage uh, of like spread across, you know, debris spread across for for hundreds of yards in a field or something. And then unfairness too. You know what? It would just be a terribly unfair way of dying. To to crash and burn in an airplane, right? Because, like, what about all the other people who didn't crash and burn in the airplane that day, right? But this is the dread equation. And we we all do this, to a certain degree or another, but now you know about it, and you can manage it, right? So manage those fears. How should we as Christians deal with our fear? For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind, okay? When we are irrationally afraid of things that, Cannot hurt us. That's a lack of faith, right? Oh, I love this. Call on God, but row away from the rocks, right? Like, yes, let's make responsible decisions. When you get in your your vehicle after church today, buckle that seatbelt, right? There are are reasonable, rational things we can do to mitigate our fears, uh, our threats. Okay, so... We're going to wrap this up here pretty quick, but I'm going to talk to guys for for a few minutes. So, ladies in the uh, congregation, you can just plug your ears if you'd like. (laughs) All right. So, men, be a man. Lead your families. If you haven't seen the movie Courageous, recommend it. Watch it right now. And make this commitment to lead your families by treasuring your wife and lovingly guiding your children as they grow up. And you launch them as arrows of truth into a dysfunctional world stop slouching along in mediocrity strive for consistency across all areas of life be the same person you are in the office as you are at the dinner table as you are at work as you are in the home i heard a coworker recently telling another co-worker he said everyone has secret lives everyone has secret lives you do you, you live differently uh, at work than you do at home, than you do with you know with your family. Uh, if you go to church, you're a different person each one, each place. It was not my it was not my place to butt into that conversation, but I thought about it for a long time. Be the same person. How can your wife and children, your coworkers, respect you if they see you acting differently at work? And then they run into you at church or on the street with your family. If you have a cell phone that your wife doesn't know the password to, you're doing life wrong. Better get your head right. Pursue hobbies and activities that you can do together as a family. Time spent with your kids is like money in the bank. You are building a relationship that you can draw on later on in life. And you will have tough times with your kids. Everyone does. But are you leading them in in maturation and spiritual development? If not, you're neglecting your duty, and you're failing God. Ellen White said this, A well-ordered Christian household is a powerful argument in favor of the reality of the Christian religion, an argument that the infidel, unbeliever, cannot gainsay or deny. So on this Memorial Day, when we remember those who have sacrificed their lives for our freedom, lay down your life for your family, for the spiritual health and development of your children and your wife. Many of your personal wants, needs, and desires may necessarily be put on the back burner to truly serve God by serving the needs of your family. This is probably going to be too small type for everyone to see, but this is the resolution that is put out in the movie Courageous. And it's at the end of the movie and they have this whole big ceremony where these men who are going through they're at slightly different places in their in their walks in life, but they come together and they see that they need to come back to God and actually take seriously their responsibility of leading their wife and children. This is the resolution. I do solemnly resolve before God to take full responsibility for myself, my wife, and my children. I will love them, protect them, serve them, teach them the word of God as the spiritual leader of my home, I will be faithful to my wife to love and honor her and to be willing to lay down my life for her as Jesus Christ did for me. I will bless my children. I will teach them to love God with all of their hearts, all of their minds, and all of their strength. I will train them to honor authority and to live responsibly. I will confront evil. I will pursue justice and love mercy. I will pray for others and treat them with kindness respect and compassion i will work diligently to provide for the needs of my family i will forgive those who have wronged me and reconcile with those i have wronged i will learn from my mistakes repent of my sins and walk with integrity as a man as a man answerable to god i will seek to honor god be faithful to his church obey his word and do his will i will courageously work with the strength god provides to fulfill this responsibility for the rest of my life and, and for his glory. And as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Joshua 24, 15. So, <clears throat> that's to you fathers, but I know that doesn't cover every all the men in this audience. So, to the men who would like to be fathers someday, women won't take you seriously if you don't take yourself seriously. So, start there with Jordan Peterson's Make Your Bed. Be the kind of man a woman could respect. Love God, serve your community, become a good provider by obtaining training or education that allows you to have a career, and also be realistic about what you have to offer. Um, That's incredibly important, and be open to the options that God puts in your life. We We have this myth. We have this myth that God has that one person out there for everyone. I don't agree with that. Obviously, I've been married happily, very happily, to my wife of 19 years. We just celebrated our 19th wedding anniversary by escaping to an exotic foreign land, Canada, uh, <laughs> over this, this week for a, a quick date uh, over the border. But really, God has so many options, so many quality people that he, he would love to bring into your life. Start taking those options Seriously. You have no idea what you're missing out on these two new dimensions if you get married. Marriage and fatherhood is like opening up a fourth and fifth dimension to life. It's incredible. Highly recommend it. <clears throat> All right, to the grandpas and granddads in the congregation, you still have time. You have a massive influence that cannot be wasted. Do your grandkids know that you love Jesus and that you love them? Is your golf game or your fishing adventures more important than spending time with your grandkids when is the last time you've interacted in a meaningful way with them perhaps it's time for a call or a visit all right let's read this again out of every 100 men 10 shouldn't even be there 80 are just targets nine are the real fighters we're lucky to have them for they make the battle ah but the one one is a warrior and he will bring the others back do you read that with different eyes now. I certainly do, and I want to be that one, and I hope you will be that one to bring others to Jesus. Where do you stack up in the battle for souls? This is the most important job that we could have, and we need to start with our families. All right, that's all I've got for that.